You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with its sister sites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV focused The Driven, very much in the news at the moment. But joining me, as usual, is um, ITK analyst David Lynch. David, I trust you are well. Uh, Giles, I'm recovering from a virus as it happens, uh, but I'm well enough to do this podcast and trust our oh. listeners uh uh, uh, um, as interested in electricity and decarbonisation as ever. Well, absolutely. Otherwise, they probably won't be here. Anyway, we've got a very interesting guest. Uh, first up, Rod Sims, um, we very well known regulator, head of the ACCC for many, many years, and IPART before that has played a critical role in some of the great competition debates around the country, not least of it around electricity. He has now re-emerged along with Professor Ross Garno as the co-founders um, of a new institute called the Superpower Institute uh, based in South Australia. And um, we caught up with Rod Sims um, a while ago, and um, here's what he had to say. So, Rod Sims, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Tell us about the Superpower Institute, um, what its aim is, and how it came to be that Australia's competitions are should now become this a proponent of this massive transition in Australia's um, economy. Obviously, I've been following the debate. I mean, I've been pretty close to public policy for about 40 years, and so I've been following all these debates. But at the ACCC, uh, there's just so many things else to do. Um, you can't give your mind to everything. But I was asked by Ross, who I've known for a very, very long time, to launch his superpower book, uh, which I did. Um, and as soon as I read the dust cover, I knew that this was just a brilliant idea. And of course, Ross has refined the ideas since then. What appealed to me was that the debate and discussion for a long time was about how dealing with climate change, you know, here's yet another problem we've got to deal with. Uh, of course, we've got to do it, but, you know, it's another cost, uh, another thing we that's going to slow down our standard of living and adversely impact people. And what Ross was saying in that book quite clearly and what he's now refined is that it's actually a fantastic opportunity and the way he was putting that, and the way I would put it, is that, yes, of course, we've got huge resources of coal and gas, which means, and they have in many ways underpinned our industrial capacity and comparative advantage. But in the new world, we've actually got the best resources of solar and wind in the world when you combine those resources. And of course, we've got a tremendous amount of biomass. So there's just no reason why we can't actually produce a whole lot more things than what we produce now. I mean, obviously, we've got the, the minerals which the world needs, 
not just the current ones we do, but the new energy transition minerals, some of which we've got in abundance. But also, we should, by the laws of economics and comparative advantage, be the processor of many of those minerals, since it makes no sense to send the ore offshore. You, you can't really effectively send the renewable energy offshore. And if we've got the best renewable energy resources, and that's what you need to process green metal, then it's best to do it here. We can also produce green fertiliser, um, chemicals and plastics, uh, not to mention, obviously, electrifying the system. So, look, a long answer, but it, it's really we should be understanding, I, I guess, two things. One is we should be understanding the size of the opportunity for Australia. And secondly, we shouldn't just be having the conversations which we continue to have, which talks about the economy and where are the jobs and investment coming from on the one hand and climate transition in a, in a different bucket under a different heading. It, it should be integral to any conversation of Australia's economy going forward and it should be embraced as a way to deal with climate change and improving our living standards. And, and of course, when you mentioned Ross, that's uh, Professor Ross Garneau, um, who's the sort of the co-founder of this institute. And he's been talking for a long time about the benefits of this sort of superpower opportunity and, and, and others have too. But as you sort of say, so much of the debate in Australia is sort of you know dominated by the people who sort of worry about the cost of it. We just saw another report come out this week from the Melbourne, uh, Melbourne University and the University of Queensland. Quite interesting, but basically it only talked about the cost and not the benefits. And, You've seen the power of legacy industries um, in your role as competitions are. How do we change that conversation? Because these are very powerful people and they've basically got this really nice business model which has served them well for the last few decades and they don't necessarily want to change. That's really the reason why the Institute's been formed. As you say, Ross has been making these points for some time, but we're still getting commentary just about everywhere separating the future of the Australian economy from the climate transition. So the Superpower Institute is there to really help integrate that discussion. Uh, and step one in making it happen is to change the narrative. And when people talk about productivity, jobs, investment, they've got to be talking about the climate change transition. They're going to be talking about it as an opportunity. So the Institute is there on a continuing basis. It's not-for-profit, it's philanthropically funded, it's a research organisation, basically making data available, um, uh, working with governments, working with industry to show what is practically possible. This is setting up a body of people with excellent scientific knowledge, a bit of economics thrown in there, to keep prosecuting the case on a, on a continuing basis and to keep working with governments. We're currently working with the South Australian government uh, to help them come up with a roadmap for the transition. Uh, and that will help because that'll be a great demonstration to other states about what they should be doing. So the Institute 
is really our way of trying to take the debate to another level. I'd love to talk about South Australia um, um, later on. And before I hand over to David for his sort of questions, um, just about the urgency then. So the Institute, and we sort of talk about this resistance and the people sort of wanting to separate those two, those, that, that sort of debate between, you know, the future um, economy and, and climate. We're starting to see some of the other big economies in the world move decisively, particularly in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act. Australia can't really afford to sit back and be slow about this, can it? No, it can't. And obviously, we're coming from a bit of a backmark, or definitely a backmarker. So we can't afford to let others take the opportunity. But but step one is we've got to realise the opportunities there. Because if we don't realise the opportunities there, then you, you almost can take the view, well, let the other countries do it. Hard work, let them do it. We've got to change the narrative so people understand this is an opportunity for us. We've got a massive advantage in terms of our solar and wind resources and our land mass to actually be the leader here. Um, you know, you read all the time about different countries wanting to do things with biomass or with solar. They don't have the land. They don't have the sun. And, of course, wind farms out in the ocean, which is fine, but we've got wind resources sitting in various parts of this immense country, we should own this opportunity. So we have to get people convinced of that. And then, of course, they can understand that, hang on, if we don't do something, others are going to take this opportunity away from us. Step one is realise this is actually an opportunity. Yes, there's a climate change imperative, but this is an opportunity for Australia and we shouldn't let others grab it. It's a natural opportunity for us. I should just add, I don't think all those other countries doing things is necessarily harming us because the more that happens, the better. And there's just so many countries that can't do what we can do. I think there's plenty of space for us. But clearly, the faster we move, the better off we're going to be. Uh, so, Rod, it's interesting to me because I've been thinking about this for years. Um, first of all, let me just ask, what role do you think federal government policy, something you've probably ha thought about in various fields for a long time, what do you think the role is for actual policy? Let me just uh, point to the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, on this very podcast last year, we had evolved economics from the USA. Um, uh, ben Haley's uh, pointing out that, you know, they'll be able to write wind and solar PPAs in the United States because of the tax advantages at, you know, 10 and 20 US dollars a megawatt hour which is uh, lower than what we can achieve in Australia right at the moment, you know, half. Um, you know, it, it's all very well to say we've got a great resource, and it's true, but it's like what I remember about when uh, I was talking to one of my professional guitarists who's very, uh, very, very talented, and he went to see a producer and he played something, and the producer said, you, could, you can really play. That's about 10% of what you actually need. Yeah, look, good question. Um, the role of government here, I think, is that there's an enormous amount of infrastructure to be built. Some of it is going to be a monopoly, and I think there's a role for government to build that infrastructure. We've got to build it quickly. Obviously, a lot of electricity transmission infrastructure, um, but also uh, uh, storage for hydrogen pipes for, for hydrogen, um, 
there's going to be a need to build desalination plants. I think there's there's monopoly infrastructure there that that the government's going to have to should should be the one investing in it because that's the fastest way to do it, and and it'll earn a commercial rate of return. Secondly, you've got a lot of new technology. The South Australian government is is uh, funding the electrolyzer to uh, produce green hydrogen from renewable energy. I think when you've got new technology, if you wait for the private sector, you'll be waiting too long. I think there's a role of government to get in and, and do that or help that being done. That's the easy bit. Then you get to the bit about tax incentives um, and they are always going to be temporary um, because no government will keep them going forever. The issue is that getting the scale that's needed does take time. Uh, if you go back 20 years and you've mentioned photovoltaic cells to people uh, as a, a considerable source of electricity for homes, they would have thought you were completely stupid. Now it's completely accepted. And that's just technology improving. And that's what's going to happen with wind. That's what's going to happen with solar. That's what's definitely going to happen with hydrogen. So a role for government in pushing that along, I think, is very much a good thing. And what the Institute's going to do, uh, and obviously we've only just started, is to think through those issues and how best to uh, uh, facilitate them. Obviously, the first best way of doing it is if we had uh, a proper carbon tax, because that would send the right price signals, uh, that would raise revenue. It's the obvious economic way to do it. Economists learn that in the first week of their course. Uh, so that's one way to do it. Tax incentives might be another way. Uh, we'll be working on what is the best way, but there's a there's a central role for government in this transition. And the good news is it's a role for government supporting where Australia will have a comparative advantage. It's not a role for government supporting industries that have no long-term future in Australia. This does, so I think there is an active role for government uh, and I think that's a big role for the Commonwealth working with all the states. I think that's a very interesting economic question, which, which our listeners probably don't want to hear too much about right this very second as to whether the carrot, uh, like we have in the United States with tank tax incentives and, you know, the production tax incentives been going for a good 20 years. It was always going to be phased out one year later, but it never was. And now it's, it's you know, like tripled and trebled and quadrupled in size or the stick, which is a European approach with the carbon price and the carbon border tax, uh, is actually going to be the more effective approach in, in the longer term. I personally think that actually the carrot approach is the easiest one politically. Everyone loves a tax deduction and it's very hard to argue that someone shouldn't get it. But that's, uh, that's one thing. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask about is that having the lowest cost of uh, renewable energy is only a very one component like if i think about something like i don't know like an aluminium smelter for instance and we say we wanted to make uh, green aluminium in this country uh, then the firming part of it you know you've got a very fixed load there is also important and australia doesn't really have much firming advantage do we compared to say european hydro or all the gas in the united states uh, uh, it's very early in the life of uh, 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 of your um, uh, business, but uh, how are you thinking about that? Just quickly, 
going back to the other topic, uh, I mean, the government budget is under pressure and we have to recognise that. Um, also, we have to recognise that the Europeans may well press ahead with carbon border taxes anyway. So we really need to take a good look at what's going on around the world and what's possible here. And so I guess I'm really just signalling the possibilities rather than a preference for, for one or the other. But it's a key piece of work of the Institute to contribute to that discussion. Uh, look, on firming, um, certainly when we look at South Australia, uh, just as an example, the combination of wind and solar does tend to, you know, when one da one's down, the other one's up, they tend to complement each other. Uh, if you are building hydrogen electrolyzers, uh, they need energy, but you can vary that energy so that that can play a role in, in making sure that those who need constant electricity from renewable sources have it. We do have a fair degree of pumped hydro potential. Obviously, the signals around what Snowy Hydro is doing make that a little bit complicated. I'm personally not worried about the firming. Um, you know, if, if firming means that we need a trivial amount of gas peakers for a few more years, I mean, frankly, who cares? Um, you know, you're sitting here with a coal-dominated electricity system on the East Coast. You've got um, uh, gas-fired generation that is closed cycle, so it's on, you know, 50% of the time. The only thing you need for uh, uh, firming and is, if you do need gas, it's a trivial amount of gas, uh, and you won't need that for, for that long. So whether we're, we're doing it with um, balancing uh, wind and solar and balancing hydro hydrogen, obviously that's a, a little way off, but, but not that far off. We do have the pump storage, um, a little bit of gas for a while. I, I really don't think firming's the problem. I think we can solve that quickly uh, and effectively. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree, but I'm not sure that everyone else does. And I'll hand back to Giles in a minute, but I just wanted to ask uh, uh, one more question about the Institute itself. I mean, what sort of resources do you think, uh, you know, in terms of people, I guess, and do you actually need to to make a bit of a difference here? I mean, there's a lot of voices out there saying different things. What What's going to make uh, the Institute different to, to, say, the Climate Council or any of the other good and worthy businesses that are trying to get themselves heard? Uh, we want to work with them. We're going to be out there looking hard at the gaps that are there. Uh, we're going to try and bring uh, excellent science, some of the leading academics together with uh, public policy skills. Um, but we're ve very much about gaps. So we're here to make a difference. We're here to see that the transition works uh, effectively for Australia, that it works quickly. Uh, if it starts working effectively for Australia and quickly and there's not much we have to do, that's fantastic. You know, we're not, we're not here to elbow anybody out of the way. At the moment, we judge it's not being picked up well enough and there are practical things we can do and so we'll do them. Uh, but very much want to collaborate with other climate organisations completely, uh, very much want to collaborate with governments and industry, but we're in the gap-filling business. What, what's needed? You know, sit back, look around, what's missing in the debate? What do we need to inject into it? 
the issue you mentioned earlier about you know carbon border taxes, uh, subsidies versus carbon taxes, those issues are ones we obviously need to think about. In terms of size, look, we've just started. Um, I've given this speech, or so I'm going to. I'm giving a speech in South Australia, so that inevitably drew attention to us, so we thought we'd better tell people we're here. Journalists found out about it, uh, so again, we had to respond. Uh, but we, to be blunt, uh, we've got philanthropy money that gets us going. Uh, we need more philanthropy money to be effective. So we're going to spend a bit of time now really focusing on that to make sure we get the resources we need. We don't need many resources. We're not, you know, we're not going to be anywhere near as big as some other climate organisations because, as I say, we're about targeted gaps doing what we think is needed. So, you know, we may well just simply be a 10 to 15 person organisation. You've got so, so very uh, senior names and uh, with a lot of... Uh you know, uh, great track record here at the top between uh, yourself and Ross Garno. I've always admired Ross's work. I'll hand back to Giles. I'm just wondering whether you can actually uh, reveal who the philanthropic backers are, or is that a bit sensitive? Uh, look, I'm just not sure whether all of them are in a position to be acknowledged, so I, I might just hold that one for now. Uh, but the, the key point, if there's a message coming out of this, is we need some more. Okay, we have some more, please. Uh, um, so some of the opportunities that you describe, one of them is in sort of um, added value on, on metals and refining and, um, and and what have you. I'm wondering whether you're thinking about new industries here or whether you're sort of talking about sort of converting the existing sort of refiners and refining um, measures that already happen in Australia. I think in the first instance, so, so it's a bit of both. I mean, Again, if you go to South Australia, you've got the electrolyzer being built uh, near uh, existing magnetite ore deposits, near uh, processing facilities. Uh, so you can build on all that. And of course, it's near renewable energy as well. You can build on all that. Uh, whether the existing organisations uh, want to do it or not, again, there's policy issues there. They should be willing to pick up these opportunities, but we've got to make sure we've got the incentives and settings right to encourage them to do that. Uh, we're hoping, therefore, that the existing companies will do it, but I'm also sure that we're going to have new companies. It's going to be a mix of both. And, you know, what, what is good about all this is that Australia has an excellent track record of being... Uh, innovative in, in mining, innovative in agriculture uh, and innovative in certain types of, of industry and this is what we need now. So we've got a base to build from but we've got to actually understand that you know, mining is going to play a central role here and that's actually an interesting message to get out to people. Uh, you know, you mentioned Ross's work, and I think it has been fantastic work. Ross points out that about 8%, 7 or 8% of the world's emissions are used to make steel. Now, to some extent, you might try and move the economy away from steel, but you won't completely move the economy away from steel, aluminium. Of course, you need copper as an energy transition mineral anyway. We've got those resources. It just makes a lot of sense to process them here, uh, 
We've got the sort of skills that know how to do that, but we're going to need more skills in mining, metallurgy and geology. And the existing companies have got those systems to be able to do that. I think we'll be looking to them and we'll be looking to new companies as well. Uh, the biomass, I mean, you do need to plant a lot of trees. And, you know, I'm particularly taken with the concept of Mallee scrub. It uh, grows quickly. It has deep roots in the ground. Uh, you chop off a bit, other bits grow. Uh, and you need to have sustainable carbon, if I could put it that way. I mean, grabbing coal and oil and gas out of the ground that's been a billion years in the making, that's causing the problem. Grow Mallee scrub, they absorb carbon. You can then uh, chop down bits of it. It'll grow again and absorb more carbon. And when you use it, it may emit a bit of carbon, but it's all balancing. But you can see from that, you need a lot of it and you need a lot of land and it grows on semi-arid land and we've got that land and we've got a great agricultural history. So I think this builds completely on what uh, Australia has shown over years it is really, really good at. I think it'll be a combination of new and existing uh, companies. I'd like to sort of keep on South Australia. We talked a lot about that, um, but that's okay. You mentioned South Australia in the speech um, um, you make on Friday. Um, you talk about, if, as we know, South Australia's got a large amount of wind and solar, 70% over the last 12 months, 80% over, um, over the last summer. Um, but it's been a state which you would know very well and you point out in your speech, which is subject to limited competition. So when it comes down to actually dispatchable capacity, it's sort of cornered by just a very, very few players who obviously wield their market power and we hope so, um, not illegally. Um, but you make, you make the point that by increasing this demand or increasing demand by having new industries, that will actually serve to lower the price of electricity simply because there's probably more competition in the market and, and not times when things need to be spilled or, or, or rationed or, or what have you. Um, it's an interesting concept. I mean, maybe this is the one way that we can actually finally break that sort of the nexus, the power of the fossil fuel generators over pricing in the grid. Um, or maybe I'm dreaming. No, no, absolutely. I think it can. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, uh, getting this right is going to see Australia with uh, some of, if not the lowest cost power in the world. I mean, I've just got no doubt about that. Um, and if you think about South Australia, yes, you've got quite a number of problems. One is the load is very uneven. Now, what we're talking about in South Australia would even up that load enormously. There'd be much more used for industry relative to households. Um, you'd be, make much better use of existing infrastructure. And of course, the volume going over infrastructure determines the price. And because you need a lot of new generation, I think there are things government can do to make sure that new generation provides competition uh, rather than just supports the existing players. So I think there's an enormous opportunity in South Australia to transform that landscape. Um, and that's needed more in South Australia than it is in other states. But it's really going to help in all states. I mean, I'm using South Australia because we've done some work there. I'm obviously sitting in Adelaide at the moment. Uh, uh, but there's there's gains everywhere across the country. It's great to hear uh, about the, the Institute. I, I don't really have too many more questions just now, but I do have an observation, and that is it's not just the mining industry, and Australia's mining industry, you know, even we, you might ask yourself, why do we send the iron ore uh, to China? Uh, it's because, in the end, the market for the steel 
is in is in China, and and that's the way the economics work out. It's where where people underestimate the skill and the technology in producing the resources, and the extent of the actual value add that you want to do is a complicated question that depends on a bunch of factors. And uh, in in my personal opinion, but I just also wanted to point out that the new industries, software, uh, you shouldn't under we shouldn't underestimate the contribution. Uh, Australian data processors and data scientists are already making uh, to this transition in terms of uh, 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 software for market modelling, uh, software for integrating um, uh, behind the meter with in front of the meter, uh, software for for uh, uh, grid grid studies, uh, and 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 various other categories. Uh, and it probably is just as big a big employer even uh, and of a lot of uh, you know, smart people. A lot of value add, and that you know some of the world's uh, engineers come to Australia to learn and see how it's done, and that 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 too uh, can be a big industry. But anyway, that's just a, a closing observation from me. I'll look two comments if I could. Thank you. One is that there's a lot more volume in the ore than there is in the steel. If you want to send the product abroad, I accept you're making the steel for whether it's iron, metal, or or completed steel, you're doing that for the export market. But, you know, that iron ore is extremely bulky, extremely heavy, and it's going to need in the future world a lot of renewable energy to make. It's going to need a lot of hydrogen, uh, and uh, we're the best place for that. On the software and a whole range of other industries, look, I completely agree. Uh, I wasn't trying to downplay that at all. Indeed, you know, Australia's contribution... Uh, to creation of the World Wide Web and a whole range of other things is just extraordinary. So we've got the skills and they, you know, they necessarily must build around this uh, for all the reasons you mentioned. I guess the reason I was just putting the emphasis on mining and agriculture is because they often get forgotten. You, know, you often have people uh, just, just not wanting to engage with mining because of past perceptions but i, I love uh, mining you know, I, I work come from investment banking uh you know my whole um uh, background is is not in mining stocks per se but i we used to sit next to mining analysts of mining shares in my portfolio uh you know there's a lot we can do uh and it's a it's just a very interesting question with the iron ore thing whether a steel works in australia uh will will be viable you know and and it's this total integration i don't think we can think of businesses as isolated businesses, uh, let's think about the ba EV batteries. You know, you've got the cell development, you've got the cell manufacturer, you've got the manufacturer of the battery, uh, then you've got the EV that it goes into, and then the marketing and distribution distribution arm for the EVs. Now, the question about where you should put each component and whether they should all be located right next to each other, uh, you know, th these are complicated entrepreneurial questions that I think it's very difficult for anyone outside the business involved to come to definitive answers about. Oh, look, I, I don't disagree with that, but, um, you know, to make more EVs, you're going to need a hell of a lot more copper. Um, and uh, I don't think it does any harm to uh, to any sense of innovation to see that a bit more of that should be processed in Australia because you're going to need renewable energy to do it. Iron metal, I mean, the big, the big use of the 
of renewable energy is using the hydrogen to get the iron ore into iron metal. Uh, and the economics of that, I think, are pretty clear. Uh, now, you know, you, you, you then take iron metal, you make steel, of course, then you use steel to make a whole range of other things. So I take your point about where things locate is interesting, and I'm not suggesting we're going to be making EVs, but the need to make all these things is going to drag us along very well. The fact that they need so much renewable energy to make them in a green way is going to locate a lot more of that in Australia. Quite where you draw the line, I don't know. But I think iron ore to iron metal is, is a really strong candidate and a great example of what Australia could be doing, which would save world emissions enormously. I mean, we're half the world's source of iron ore in Australia. Um, and I, I think it's going to just be a lot more effective to make it in a, to turn it into metal in Australia than it is in most of the countries we send the ore to. So when we, my last question, when we talk about the points of resistance to this transition and to the opportunities that, that are before us, um, how do we get around those? What, 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 what are the levers that we can deploy? Is it a matter of policy? Is it regulation? Is it flow of capital? Is it the court of public opinion? Or is it kind of like a mix of all of the above? I think it's got a lot to do with information. I think the uh, companies who uh, haven't, to be uh, perhaps a bit protective of them, thought enough about the transition or who just judge that it's in their commercial interest to keep doing things as business as usual rather than making the transition, which I think commercially is a wrong call, but, but that's the call some of them are making. Uh, they can put information out there that uh, I think needs to be tested and to some extent corrected. And a bit of practical research can do this. I think we really need to get facts and data in front of people we need to change public opinion, uh, change the economic narrative. That, that's just a crucial step and make sure that the, the narrative is not dominated by those who have a different commercial interest. And that's what the Superpower Institute, working with others, is going to be trying to do. Well, that seems like a perfect place to um, sort of wrap up. Um, Rod Sims, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast, and uh, we wish you all the best with the um, with the new venture. Thank you very much, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. Really appreciate it. Uh, Rod Sims, the uh, chairman of the Superpower Institute. Um, David, look, pretty interesting stuff. Um, probably a shame he wasn't sort of saying those sort of things out loud when he was head of the ACCC, but um, better late than never. Uh, look, I suppose there's a limit to what you can say when you're the head of the ACCC and it's not really your job to be uh, setting go or advising governments about policy, but certainly, you know, it's the, it has been a policy malaise in Australia, which has only been arrested uh, to an insufficient extent, uh, in my opinion, federally, uh, by uh, uh, you know a federal government that is uh, certainly moving uh, at an only just noticeable pace. And, I mean that's a little harsh, but I, I still think we could be when you compare the giant strides that the United States has made with the Inflation Reduction Act, and I start to look at the uh, 
investment going into the United States, and it really, really is going in there at a, at a massive rate uh, um, as a result of that act. And I think how much more we we can do in Australia. Uh, it's fine to have institutes and lots of talk, uh, but it's really action, you know. And I think the same goes for. Uh, doesn't it, you'd know more the better about me that the EV um, and emission standards uh, uh, policy that's been released that despite all the talk we have to have some more well that's right yes well you could probably say that the federal government has changed the conversation but probably not um, enough of the policies and we saw that with the safeguard mechanism um, probably a step in the right direction but probably not a step far enough and i think we can say the same thing about the ev policy very welcome the fact that they're committed to an emission standard but by golly we've been talking about this for at least a decade and we've just seen the us come out with a very very strong standard that they think is just going to sort of electrify quite literally <laughs> their fleet and we're still waiting for a decision. And I guess the fear is, having kicked the can down the road, the fear is that somehow it's not going to be strong enough, it's not going to be quick enough. And, um, you know, there's there's so much interest in EVs at the moment in Australia. Um, and well, Giles, I, th I think, you know, let's talk about uh, a bit out of school in a sense. It's quite obviously the Japanese are not on board with EVs. Japan uh, car makers, and particularly Toyota and I guess Mazda, are by far the biggest uh, sellers of cars in this country and they've got no interest really in promoting an EV strategy because they can't benefit from it. That's point one. And point two, what I think has got the federal government also uh, uh, keeping an eye on things is that it's going to actually raise the price of uh, fuel vehicles. You, you may save money as a motorist because you pay less for your petrol by having more efficient uh, motor over time but the sticker price is going to go up and uh, that's going to get some blowback in certain parts of the country, particularly in North Queensland, you know, where anything from the, uh, you know, uh, 21st century is treated with a fair amount of suspicion. It's interesting what you talk about with uh, Toyota and, um, and uh, well, you could probably put Mitsubishi and Honda in there as well. Um, they're just so used to their current business model. It's a bit, well, you know, what Rod Sims sort of touched on. People sort of, you know, industries very, don't want to change anything. And it was fascinating to see um, Elon Musk come out this week and releasing the Tesla results. And they've been sort of lowering the prices of their cars in the China, US and Australian market for that matter. And Elon Musk was talking about, well, we can actually sell our cars at zero uh, margin and we can sort of gain on all the other things that they add on. And, and he says in particularly autonomy, but there's a whole bunch of other things that you could add on. Um, and he sort of made the point, no no, no need for maintenance or none of this warranty business, which is basically the lifeblood of all the major car makers now. Um, he's got all these other different offerings basically around software, including autonomy, which nobody else can match. So we're at an interesting juncture, I think, in the uh, Well, well Giles, I, I mean, you know, I think Elon Musk has done wonderful things in so many ways. He's probably done more to reduce carbon pollution than any other single individual in the world in, in some ways. But he also talks a lot of bullshit. His EBITDA, <laughs> his EBITDA margin was down 40% year on year, you know. Uh, all these other things that he talks about are not actually doing much for his cash flow with the sole exception of the, you know, uh, uh, stationary energy. That's the battery market for, for you know, your, your power packs and, and, and so on. I mean, you know, his car margins were, were well down in terms of their impact on gross profit. And so he'll have to keep an eye on that. You know, his cash flow was still positive 
but it wasn't as positive as it was a year ago. Well, that's true enough. I still think his margins, which I think are about 19%, are just so far ahead of the rest of the industry. It's not funny. But um, anyway, we should leave that debate for the future. Back in Australia, um, we're closing down coal-fired power stations. Liddell is closing its units in the next week. I think the last one will close next Friday. The first one was going to close this Wednesday, put off to this Friday, now put off till next Monday. Um, this next unit will follow. Um, David, it's an interesting thing about sort of prices going up if they close the coal-fired power station. I'd just like to sort of make the point that um, if prices do go up because of the closure of the Dell coal-fired power station, it's not because anything got more expensive. It's just because some people think they've got greater market power. Well, there will be more market power. By definition, there'll be less supply of firming power in the evening um, uh, as a result of taking uh, Liddell out of the market because we haven't built enough new um, uh, firming uh, dispatchable capacity, if you want to use that term, uh, for the evening and early morning uh, spots just yet. Now, having said that, power prices, spot prices are coming down. They're actually about 40% below where they were a year ago. And that means that particularly that the, the closure of Liddell is probably not going to see prices rising above last year. The question is whether they'll be higher than they would have been if Liddell had not closed. And that's something we can't uh, really observe. But the general point remains overall that uh, we've also got the Araring closure coming up. Uh, thank goodness. It's, uh, um, and we just need to get on with building this new capacity and the infrastructure to support it as fast as we possibly can. That is the only game in town. And there's um, some news on that front this week. Um, Origin Energy came out and gave its final investment decision on the Araring battery. It'll be built in two stages. I mean, it would if um, full capacity be the biggest in the country, or at least on the main grid. Um, its first stage will be 460 megawatts and 920 megawatt hours to our battery, which is bigger than anything that's been built so far, but will probably be overshadowed by the so-called Waratah super battery. A um, couple of interesting points to note about that. One is that the contract has gone to the Finnish group Wartsila, who are currently building the Torrens Island battery, which is a battery that was actually sort of completed last November as far as the um, installation went, but has taken about six months to get its um, shit together for the connections, the commissioning. Um, that's probably not the right technical word, but um, it's um, it's been some delay. But anyway, um, and there's a whole bunch of other new batteries sort of very close to coming on stream. I'm thinking of Tail and Bend. I'm thinking of Chinchilla and Bouldercombe in uh, Queensland. Uh, I'm thinking of the Riverina and Darlington batteries in New South Wales. So finally, we're seeing a lot more battery storage, David, but um, we could see maybe an acceleration of the auction process for the New South Wales roadmap. That might be a good idea. Uh, yes, so the batteries are one thing and they're great. Uh, I will note that most of the batteries are still being built in, in the two-hour framework, which says that they've got their eye as much on the uh, system services inertia and frequency control as, as they do on the uh, shifting of the uh, demand, tra trading trading solar in the, in the middle of True the day enough. for... Uh, that's the one thing. The other thing I think that we need to keep mentioning is that the behind the meter uh, storage uh, sector continues to grow apace and is probably equivalent each year to one large battery, uh, um, one utility scale large battery. And so that's also very encouraging. Uh, but in general, it's, um, you know, the economics for batteries, I would say, uh, are still as load shifters. They're still not quite competing on their own 
uh, against uh, gas, uh, existing gas. They compete quite well against new gas, but not against existing gas, I don't think, just yet. But if we add in the system services revenue that they get, then I think the economics do get over the line. And that must be the case because they're all getting built. Mm. That's right. And look, it's um, one final thing. I'm not too sure what else you want to mention before we sort of sign off. But um, um, there's a lot of um, efforts towards electrification at the moment, which is quite interesting. Um, Canberra um, is sort of uh, building a second suburb, uh, which will be fully electric with no gas reticulation. And um, it's now sort of teamed up with Choice to advise people in existing houses and other suburbs how to get off gas and uh, go fully electric. And I noticed that the Climate Council has done something similar as well, more sort of broader advice about how to go electric. So there's a lot of questions about it and um, the gas industries are putting up a stirring defence about how this will all mean blackouts and the end of the great Aussie barbecue. But um, I'm not too sure whether we can take them quite at their word. Um, David, anything else to contribute? Uh, not not that much. It's interesting that Canberra's doing that because Canberra's a suburb that does need winter heating and uh, convincing uh, uh, us all that, that your, you know, your house is warm and comfortable in winter without having gas is, is, is a great step forward. I, I don't, the only, um, no real contribution, just when are we going to see some more wind and solar projects, more wind projects, frankly, first and all, actually getting announced and reaching financial close. I just, you know, hoping for another uh, three or four gigawatts this year, and um, mm. still waiting. Still waiting. Well, we did see actually the sod turning um, of the Golden Wayne, Golden Plains wind farm in Victoria, which is 750 megawatts since first stage, I think, or 700, going to be 1.3, 1.4 gigawatts once it gets fully built. So that is at least some advance, but that's got a nice kick along from the state government, which tells us something about. Um, their need to um, put money in where it's needed. Um, David, I think that's about all for now. Um, thank you very much. Thank you to Rod Sims from the Superpower Institute and uh, good luck to that organisation. Um, thanks to everybody out there listening. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And uh, we shall be back again next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.